Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. It's in the Pauline epistles, and the way I was told a long time ago to remember what those, the four were, like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, was GE Power Company. So GEPC, that's how you can remember where it is. Uh, and we're embarking on a new study of Philippians today, and uh, it's called Together in Joy and Purpose. And I love the letters of the New Testament because they serve as a test case uh, for how to live the Christian life. It helps me, it's helped the Pauline epistles particularly through the years have helped me understand better what the gospel is and how it transforms our lives and how it deeply impacts us. And I think it's an incredibly important book, uh, letter, and timely for us as American Christians as I think will become more apparent as we read through it and, and study what it's about. Uh, the major theme, as in all of Paul's letters, is the good news of Jesus Christ who he is, and what he has accomplished for us. But as you go through Philippians, there are particular themes that are pulled out over and over, these overarching themes. One of those is the theme of unity, particularly within the body of believers, and how the gospel enables God's people to unite in very powerful ways. The second is that's facing opposition to the gospel from forces outside, and even sometimes from inside the church, and how do we deal with that as Christians and then a last thing that we're going to talk a lot about will be God's end game, his redemptive goal for the world, the day that God has marked on his calendar when all wrongs will be set right, all harms will be healed, and all that is now broken will be made new. And the Bible says we're a part of that history. Our culture right now says we're, it portrays a different understanding of history. We're removing further and further away from God and the Bible says, no, we're hurtling right into the presence of God. And for those who trust in Christ, what a glorious and wonderful day that is going to be. Um, so uh, we're going to read this morning and start our study of Philippians with Philippians 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. And if you're willing and able, in honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Paul's introduction, his greeting uh, in Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise 
of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look more deeply into it this morning. Uh, Father, you have called me to something I am not able to do on my own, and that is to talk about the glorious truths of the gospel in a way that people can hear. My own weakness, my sin, my insecurities, my failings, my flaws, and every area of my life should in some sense make me unable to talk about the truth of your righteousness and holiness. And yet as a recipient of your grace, you have called me to do this. And so I pray that today I would simply be the person who talks about the one who has redeemed me and saved me and offers that to all that are in the room who may not believe yet and to comfort all those who are in the room who already believe it but struggle Uh, to bring it into the depths of their souls. Father, would you be pleased uh, to pour out your spirit on all of us, both the one who speaks and all those who are listening? We, We desire, we long to meet with you. Would you do that? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. That's low. Okay, I'm going to let that up. It's not going to mess up anything on the camera thing. we got it going on. Okay, that's better. Okay. Um, so starting off, the, the gospel of Jesus moves us closer to one another in a world where we tend to be driven apart. Let me say that again because I think it's really true and it's a big part of this letter. The gospel of Jesus moves us closer to one another in a world where we tend to be driven apart. And we can feel that movement away from each other in a a very big way in our culture right now. Even if it was just COVID and isolation and being pushed apart from other people for a time. For some people after that, they found it very hard to move back together. They're still kind of isolated and removed and some of us have found our... Some of us have found our people skills lacking as a result of that. My wife tells me that all the time about me. I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. I love her. So. It's good. Um, but if it's not, you know, with the COVID isolation, it's navigating political divisions that are between us. Um, it's navigating the scandals and things that make people feel embarrassed and not trusting towards one another. Sometimes it's abuse. It's our electronic equipment that we fall into and we become isolated from the people around us even when we're in the same room or the same car with them. Uh, We're isolated with our individualism and the atomization of saying it's about me and the world that I want around me. But when you start looking at the scripture, you realize that uh, God calls us to something different. This is a letter to the church about being the church. And if the church is anything that you see in scripture, it's a community. It's not an institution. It's not a place. It's not something we do on Sunday morning. The church is the people who gather. It's a community of people. So this letter is a letter to a church about being a church and the impact that Jesus has on us as individuals and as a community of people who are living together in Christ. So Paul wrote this letter to tell a church about the impact that Jesus has on us. And it begins with uh, what would appear to be a simple greeting, but it's more than that. He begins with a statement about in God about who Christians are. And so this is where we're going to begin. And we're going to talk about two things this morning. Is One is how the gospel creates a new you. And the second thing is how the gospel creates a new us together. Does it make sense? Sound good? Okay. Here we go. Uh, two points and they'll take forever. It's good. Okay. First point, a new you. So he begins with a greeting to those uh, he calls saints. 
Now, I know that's a word that throws many of us off a little bit because when we think about saints, we think about people who are spiritual overachievers. You know, if I ask you to think of saints in your mind, you would think about Mary and Peter and Paul and different people that you would say, that's a saint. That's somebody who has done extraordinary work. Uh, they are exemplary. And uh, there's, so there's a special category for people who do, who've done as much as they have. It's called a saint. In fact, we would, reading this letter, we might expect Paul to introduce himself, not as a servant of Christ Jesus, but as Saint Paul. But instead, he refers to himself as a servant and to all the people who are the recipients of this letter in the church, not as Christians, but as the illustrious saints. Because this is how God sees his people, as saints. Right? The word saint is used over 60 times in the New Testament to refer to uh, believers in Christ. In the Old Testament, I was reading just this morning in Psalm 148, and they're called God's people collectively. All of them are called the saints. And what that means is the holy ones, or maybe the sanctified, or those who are set apart. These are people who are unique and special to God because they believe. That's the qualification for being a saint, is you believe in Jesus. So being a saint refers to our status before God given by grace. So he's referred to them as saints. And then in verse 7, he refers to them as partakers of grace. So the saints were partakers of grace. That's how somebody becomes a saint. It's not by their doing, but by the doing of Christ on their behalf. So grace, it, grace is God's intent to bless those who don't deserve it. Grace is the overflow of God's loving, charitable, and generous nature to meet the deepest needs and to give good gifts to people who are undeserving and ungrateful, unrighteous, and unloving, who are sinners, but to do this for them in Jesus Christ. So grace is not God's re response to us based on something we do. Grace is God's disposition towards us regardless of what we do. We don't achieve grace. We receive grace. So Peter, Paul, Mary... You know, not that group from the 60s, but, but in the Bible, the people that we would refer to as saints, they would not like the, for us to talk about them the way that we talk about the saints of old in that way. Because they would say, I'm, when you read them in the scripture, they say things like, who am I? Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm the chief of sinners. So they're not saying, I've done something great and I've achieved a new status. They're saying, I'm just like you. The only thing that I have is Jesus. But if it helps you, the, the, the feeling that you get when you think about those saints of old and the great things they did and you think God must have all this deep affection for them, then think about it this way. God has that kind of deep affection for you. And you may say, but I've not done anything. And the response is, that's true. And some of you here this morning might think, well, th this is really what's keeping me from being a Christian is I'm no saint. And the response is, no, you're not. But none of us are the way that we tend to think about it. But in terms of what people in the Bible thought about being a saint, it was we're the holy ones of God set apart in Jesus Christ by faith in him. That's what it means to be a saint. But we struggle with thinking that somehow it's about what I do. And when we do that, if you're paying any attention to your own life, you realize I really haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. And all of us think this way, even a pastor. I have a friend in ministry, and uh, he was uh, kind of doing the same thing we're doing here is planting a church, and it was in the early stages of this. And uh, he had done other things in ministry before this, but uh, he found that planting a church where he was planting, it was really difficult. And so it was the first Sunday, I think, when they were going to plan worship together, and he would broadcast it to the community, 
and nobody showed up on Sunday morning. And so he was thinking, I am the worst church planter on the planet. And so the next day, Monday morning, he, he does what a lot of pastors will do. He went and kind of licked his wounds in the, in the local gym, and he's on the treadmill. And I'm just kind of imagining him just like slowly walking on this, like carrying the weight of the world. I can't believe. And so in his mind, he's picturing himself on the football field. Uh, Jesus is his coach. And so he's just lost the game for the team, and he comes running, walking, like moseying over to the sidelines, and he says, I did everything I could. I tried as hard as I could. And he just buries his head on Jesus' shoulder, the coach, and says, I tried as hard as I could. And he said, the vision solidified what he thought that Jesus thought about him, that you weren't doing enough. You weren't struggling enough. You weren't doing these things. And so it solidified it. So he said, I'm going to try harder. So uh, about three weeks later, you know, he has several Sundays in between, but the third week later, he finds himself again on the treadmill. And just like, this is not going so well for what I'm doing. And so the image on the football field came into his mind, and he saw himself coming over to the sidelines and trying to bury his face in Jesus' shoulder and say, I am sorry, I am so sorry, I have messed this up. And he said he had this impression that Jesus came in the middle of his, you know, he's imagining this, and Jesus came in the middle of it, and he grabbed him by the face. His name's Ricky, and, and this is what he said. So he imagined Jesus grabbing him and looking him right in the eye and saying, Ricky, you're in the band you're not on the team. I won the game. It's over. Your job is not to score touchdowns, and your job is not to win the game. Your job is to play, play the fight song to let everybody know that I won. Relax. The game is over, and I've won it. Right? Saints don't achieve grace. We receive grace. Jesus has done it. I haven't done it. You haven't done it. Jesus has done it, and we're supposed to play the alma mater. We're supposed to play the fight song. And we see just how deep this is in verse 6, where he says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So he tells us it was God who began it, and God is going to finish it. God is going to get this thing done. Jesus has won this, right? So he says, He who began a good work. He, God initiated this. So one of the places you can read about this is back in uh, Acts 16. So while I'm not preaching later on today, read Acts 16. And uh, that was the birth of the church in Philippi. And so one of the first people that, uh, one, well, I'll back up a little bit. Before they even met one person, Paul was having a rough time as a church planter, as an evangelist. And at one point, uh, he had a vision from God telling him to go to Philippi. Now, there weren't a bunch of people in Philippi saying, Lord, uh, you know, come on and send somebody here. Uh, there was a lot of uh, unbelief going on in Philippi. And God specifically sent a vision to Paul to say, I'm sending you to Philippi. And Paul went. So providentially, within God's plan, God sent Paul to Philippi. So that's how it all started. So he who began a good work in Philippi, God uh, was due to them, that, that's how they heard the gospel for the first time. But one of the first people that Paul met was a woman named Lydia, and she, was, she and some people were gathering to pray by a river, and Paul went to, the, to this spot and began to share the gospel message with them. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It said, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, of purple cloths or goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, it doesn't say she opened her heart. It says that God opened her heart. God did it. There's a pastor who wrote this, particularly about this, this passage and this concept. He said, you believed the gospel, not because you were smarter, not because you were righteous, not because you were privileged, but because God intervened with his grace and opened your heart to obey his word, embrace Christ, and believe. So he's saying God began the work, he started it, and he's going to carry it to completion. Right? So it's, he says the beginning, he began it, and then in verse 6, he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. So it's his determination, it's his fortitude, it's his faithfulness, and it's his love. And that's how we have assurance. Is he who began it is going to finish it. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to run all the bases and get home, but God's going to make sure I get there. Now, I tell stories, and I can't remember where I told them. So if I told the story in here, you just get to hear it again. That's how it's going to work. Okay, so when I, I'm, when I was probably second grade, somewhere in that range, uh, I, it was during the 1970s, maybe, early 80s, and there was a park program that was going on, and I think, I know it was in South Carolina, it may have been in other states, where they were trying to get kids to go to the local parks, and there were programs for, for kids, and so I went there with my brothers every day, and uh, they had summer programs where we played games, football, all kinds of things, water balloon fights, and on this particular day, we were playing kickball, and uh, they had invited some players from the University of South Carolina to come, they were on the football team, there were these ginormous people, like superheroes to somebody who's just in the second grade at that time, and so... Uh, you know, it's my turn to bat. It's my turn to kick. Again, it's probably about 77, something like that. And so it's my turn on my team to, to go up to kick. And um, you think I'm skinny now. <laughs> you should have seen me, but I was like, like a little twig of a person. I had really, I looked like a Q-tick. I had Q-tip. I had brown hair that was like the big bush. I had big Coke bottle glasses, with, which we just found in a drawer. And someday I'll wear those in here just so you can see what it was like in my Coke bottle world uncoordinated and you're kind of like Stephen you're describing yourself now not exactly I'm missing some hair here so um, it's my turn to kick and the batter is pretty aware that I'm an uncoordinated little guy and so he he kicked the he rolled the ball to me and I kicked it off the side of my foot and he just did one of those kind of like, spinning things and I made it to first base against all odds I made it to first and I'm standing on first base like this is fantastic I'm on first base well the person who came up behind me to kick was one of the players from the University of South Carolina. And uh, he was, uh, he was the Incredible Hulk, I think, that was there playing uh, kickball. And they, and my brothers, my brother remembers this guy's name because he went on to play in the NFL. He was a lineman. He was just a ginormous person. And so he, they rolled the ball to him and he kicked it and it made one of those kickball noises like whoom. And it was in the air and it went over not just the pitcher's head and not just the outfielder's heads. It went over the street at the back of the park. It went over the house at the back of the park and bounced off the back part of the house so we could see it bounce from the back of the house into the trees. And, of course, all the outfielders are running to try to get the ball. And the, so I'm just watching this go over my head like this. And the next thing I knew, these two hands that were as big as my, you know, my thoracic vertebra picked me up and was carrying me around and he's running with me and every every base we'd come to he'd set me down so second base third base home plate and when I got to home base everybody's going 
and I forgot to tell you my nickname that that guy gave me, Little Stevie Wonder. So as I'm going around the bases, they're yelling, Little Stevie Wonder, Little Stevie Wonder. And they, put, they bring me all the way back to home plate, and I'm there, and everybody's giving me high fives. And I'm thinking, this is the greatest day ever. They're all cheering for me. Now, I didn't do a thing. <laughs> right? I got carried <laughs> around the bases. I'm going to make sure you get to home plate. But I was the one who was carried. And that's pretty awesome. And this is what he's saying here in this verse. He who began a good work in you is going to carry you on to completion. He's going to carry it on to completion to make sure you get home. This is where our assurance comes from. It comes from him. It comes from Jesus and his accomplished work on our behalf. It's because he loves us that he has done this. So what he's doing, that, that term status is a permanent uh, a status change for us. It's like a husband who gets married. Is when, when, when somebody gets married, they have a permanent status change. So I may be a rubbish husband, but I'm still a husband, right? And he's saying, you may be a rubbish saint in your own mind, but you're still a saint because Jesus is there and he's going to make sure you believe there's a new status, a new lifestyle, a new all of these things that come from this. And what he's telling us in this passage is not simply that, um, yeah, you're, you have a new status, but the status does change the way that we live. Just like when a person becomes a husband, they grow into that role and into that status. There are things that have to change. So in the Christian life, there are things that begin to change over time. So in uh, verse 11, uh, Paul says this, we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Not the prerequisites of righteousness to be in Christ Jesus, but you have the new status in Christ Jesus and the fruit and the new life begins to be lived out of that. So listen, if you're a Christian here today and you're struggling, um, you can't quite seem to do what you feel like you need to be doing. Well, guess what? Neither can I. And neither can any of us in here. And, but that doesn't change anything about us before God. We have the status. None of us has it all together. We're not even close. But our Father patiently and compassionately puts up with our, our tantrums, our setbacks, our failures, our freakouts, hidden sin, overt sin, everything else, and he doesn't cast his children away because he loves us and he's shown us grace. This is what R.C. Sproul says. He says, no true believer ever loses his salvation. To be sure, Christians fall at times seriously and radically, but never fully and finally. We persevere not because of our strength, but because of God's grace that preserves us. And upon that day, there's been a reference several times to, in this passage to on that day, when Christ, the day of Christ. What he's telling us is whatever there was lacking in you, Christ has made up for that. You don't need to worry about that. You're already a saint, right? He's already given you his righteousness. But all of those things that still dwell in us, that make us frustrated with ourselves, that keep us from living the way that God has called us to live, He's saying anything that's lacking in our spiritual growth will be supplied. Whatever disorder still remains will be removed. And what he's saying is, by God's grace, you're not who you were. And by God's grace, you are not yet who you will be when Jesus comes back. And he completely transforms you. And so this is how Paul begins the conversation about what the church unites on. It's not our goodness. It's not our morals. It's not our politics. It's not because we're deserving it's not because we're striving. It's because Jesus has done something to restore us to God. 
to unite us to him. And, and in doing that, he's also uniting us to each other. So he's not just making us uh, new people as individuals. He's making a new humanity. He's making a new us together in the church, right? A new community. So what, what are we to him? What are we to God? We're saints. We're loved. We're cherished. We're set apart. We're redeemed. We're adopted. So what are we to each other? Well, God has brought us near to him, and in doing so, he's brought us near to each other. And the Bible says that God has adopted us, and when a child is adopted, they're not simply brought into a family with two adults. Often they're brought into a family with other siblings. And so when God is adopting us into his family, he's adopting us not just into him, so he's our father, but he's adopting us so that we have other siblings. And he's telling us what he's intending in this. Verse 7, we're partakers of grace and partners in ministry, and this affects the way that we interact with one another. First thing, partakers of grace. He says, uh, verse 7, you were all partakers with me of grace. So grace doesn't just bind us to God, but it binds us back to each other. It's not, none of us are here because of our merit or accomplishment or anything else. We're here because of God's determination to save and rescue us despite ourselves. And this is true of all Christians. Everybody in this room is a sinner in need of grace. So remember that old, old guy from long ago called St. Augustine, right? He's a saint like us by, by faith in Christ. This is what Augustine said. He said, there is no sin which any man has done, but another man may do the same. He fell yesterday, and I may fall today. We're all equally in need of grace. Um, and we'll never get beyond that. Right? Grace, grace is not a door into the presence of God. It's a whole room. It, it's a whole building. It's a whole county. It's a whole province. It's, a whole, it's the whole world. Of grace, we live in the, the disposition of God towards us. We need grace all the time. There's not a time when we don't need it. And verse nine says this: My prayer is your love may abound more and more with knowledge and depth of uh, insight or discernment, which means that we, as we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and how much grace we need, we grow in our understanding how much God loves us, and as a result, the way that we love other people. Let me show you how this works. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he had a sermon illustration. He said, you know, imagine a friend of mine comes to my door, uh, comes to me, and he says, I was at your house the other day, and a bill came due, and you weren't there, so I paid it. Now, this is probably back in the 1920s, early 20th century when he's writing this, and so I guess you could have a postage due, like somebody didn't pay enough postage, and when the postman came, you could pay the rest of it. So that's what he means. He said, uh, postage came due. Uh, he said, uh, the bill came due. And he says, um, get myself back on track, sorry. Um, Lloyd-Jones says, how should I respond to him when he says a bill came due and he paid it? How should I respond to that? He says, I have no idea how to respond to it until I recognize how large the bill actually was. He said if it was just the postage due, like he had to pay the rest of the stamp fee or something, like 20 cents, he would say, oh, well, thanks, that's great. That's all he would get is a thanks. But then it, uh, Lloyd-Jones asked, but what if the IRS found you? What if there were 10 years of back taxes that you owed? What if there was an enormous debt? And Lloyd-Jones said, until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or to fall down at his feet and kiss his feet. Until I know how much he paid. And then Lloyd-Jones asked the question, what did Jesus Christ actually experience on the cross? 
unless you believe in the eternal judgment of God placed on Christ, all of, all of our sin forever being removed from God, all of it being compressed onto Jesus into one moment, then you will never understand how much Jesus loves you. And you will never understand how much he values you. And you will never really experience what it means to be completely free in the gospel. And when you realize what Jesus has done, it humbles us. It creates gratitude, um, loving of God and loving of other people. So people who know Jesus have experienced and continue to experience uh, this grace. They've experienced forgiveness. They've been adopted. And uh, when you recognize what Jesus has done, it begins to destroy all pride in you and create a real sense of humility. I haven't done anything to be here. So what that means is all the things that we bring into the room with us that are not Jesus by which we are assessing and judging and looking at other people, he says you have to remove those things. The church should be a place of humility and unity, love and charity, joy and celebration, even lament and repentance, but never a place of self-righteousness and pride never a place of judgment and isolation, never a place of individualism and condemnation. As long as we think there are tiers of people where it's, there are good people and bad people instead of redeemed people and those who don't yet believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, then we're going to say there are people that are better and we're going to look down on others. We're going to have insiders and outsiders, better thans and have-nots. But God's grace creates a new community with its call to love in very tangible and even sacrificial ways, which we'll talk about as we go through Philippians. But he also says something else. Not only are we all partakers and there's an even playing field for all of God's people, but he says there's a partnership in the gospel. We're called to serve one another. Um, if you think that the gospel of Jesus is about moral reformation, then you're going to look at yourself and say, I have reformed myself, I've made the right decisions, and bad people haven't. But if you look and say, the only reason is because, like Lydia, God came into my life, he sought me, and he opened my heart, and I didn't deserve it. When you recognize that, then you stop seeing people as the outsiders and insiders. You begin seeing people as those who need Jesus, whether they're in the church or outside of the church, and you end up jumping right into the family business. You become a partner in the family business. Um, Acts 16, again, back to Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the message. And after Lydia was baptized and her whole, whole, her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia, upon believing in Jesus, immediately opened up her home to other Christians and brought them in. And her home became a hub of Christian outreach and a, sub of Christ, a hub of Christian ministry in that area. So what he's saying is when a person comes to faith in Jesus, you're now part of the family business. We are partners. We have unique gifts. You have unique responsibilities, unique personality. You are needed. And God specifically chose you to be a recipient of not just his grace, but a conduit, a, a minister of his grace to other people. And Jesus transforms us and creates this new community where we're more loving than the left and more um, principled than anyone on the right. So what Jesus does is he doesn't, he doesn't just get us into heaven. Jesus enables us a whole new community that's a foretaste of heaven 
on earth. So Jesus has this vision. He's carrying it out. It over, his vision overrides all of our commitments and loyalties, and he changes how we relate to other people. And this is what he's talking about, the way that we see them. Verse 9, Paul prays that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight or discernment so that we may be, able, may be able to discern what is best or excellent. Best or excellent. Now, in the context of what he's saying here in Philippians, I think Paul is telling us what that means. He's saying the way that we see other people. And so as you look at the passage, what Paul talks about is what is best, what is excellent, are people. So verse 3, I thank God as I remember you. Verse 4, in my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Verse 5, because of your partnering in the gospel with me. Verse 7, I have you in my heart. Verse 7, uh, verse 8, I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. So what is he saying? He's saying, here's a group of people that are defined not by nationality, politics, ethnicity, or anything else. They All these differences, and they come together just in Jesus. We see this with the apostles. There were people of divergent beliefs about the world and the way government ought to be run and operated. You had one person, Matthew, who was a tax collector who sided with the Jewish enemy, the Romans. Then you had one who was a zealot, which meant he was uh, almost a terrorist back in that day, fighting for Jewish rights and freedoms against the Romans. And Jesus calls them all together into one group and says, I'm trumping those and I'm triumphing over those and I'm establishing a new community. One in which Jesus and the gospel of God, the kingdom of God, is central. And that's a message we need for today. It's a message I need. It's a message I need to hear. It's a message you need to hear. And sometimes in our lives, we actually get to experience that in a unique and vibrant way. So a few years ago, I took a group of college students down to Mexico, uh, not to party over spring break, but over for a missions trip. And so we went to Ciudad Victoria and... Uh, we were staying in a couple of different homes, and I was staying in the home of, a, of an older doctor in town. He was, uh, I think he might have been OBGYN, I can't remember. But he was a doctor, and we stayed in his nice family home, and he let us stay in this for a couple of days. It was really nice. But I could tell pretty early on that Dr. Alvarez uh, was not very happy with this brash group of college students that I had brought into his house and into his midst. Uh, they were obnoxious. They were loud. They were not grateful. And I could tell that Dr. Alvarez, who was a, just a godly Christian man, was doing his best not to get put out <laughs> with these rambunctious college students. Um, I think that he doubted whether they were even Christians just because they were you know, obnoxious Americans being loud everywhere that we went. And something changed middle of the week. On Wednesday, uh, we went to uh, this kind of, they had a church picnic. It was a national holiday, so we went by this river and I got to preach with a translator. And uh, so they asked me to preach on the finished work of Jesus. So I preached on the finished work of Jesus and, uh, with my translator. And Dr. Alvarez was listening to everything I said like a hawk. And I could see he was zoning in on every word that the translator said because he didn't speak any English or not much at all. 
And so when it was over, we opened it up for questions. And there was a man in the group who asked a question of me. And that's really hard when you're dealing with a translator. And so he asked the question. My translator was whispering to me. And I thought, okay, I've got the question. So I answered the question in a way that most Americans would say, oh, that's a good answer. But he wasn't satisfied with it. And so he's, he's continuing to ask the question and push back a little bit. And at this point, Dr. Alvarez, who'd been listening to the whole exchange, he got into the conversation because he's recognizing something. That guy up there who's been preaching and I are on the exact same page. We can't speak the same language, but we believe the same thing about the finished work of Jesus. So he started to answer the question from this man. And so all of a sudden, I'm listening to the translator as Dr. Alvarez is talking. I'm thinking, that's a great answer. That's fantastic. That's a good answer. And we, we kind of looked at each other when that was over and said, okay, we're on the same page. We can't speak the same language, but we are worshiping the same Jesus. So that night, uh, Dr. Alvarez, who was not, he didn't really have anything to do with us up to that moment. He took all of us Americans out to McDonald's. <laughs> I'm going to give you an American meal. And so we went to McDonald's and we had a great time. And he did his best in his most broken English to try to tell us his testimony of how God had met with him. It was fantastic. Then the next day, he had us come to his office because he wanted us to share in where he ministered and where he worked and what he did in the community. It was fantastic. And then the day that we left and we were going to our airplane, we were getting on the bus and Dr. Alvarez, to the shock of all the Americans and all of the, uh, the Mexican uh, nationals who were there who were watching, decided that he wanted to do a kind of a traditional Mexican dance to say goodbye to us. And so our eyes were big and all the Mexicans' eyes were big. I can't believe this very, very prim and proper Dr. Alvarez would be doing this right in front of us. But it was his way of communicating, I love you. You're my brothers and sisters. I, would, I had the opportunity to get to know you. We're different, but I want you to share in my culture just as I, sh I shared it yours at the beginning of the week. In Christ, establishing a new community. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could begin to see the gospel breaking down all the barriers between us and particularly other Christians, but also the people in our communities as we bring Christ into that and they see Jesus is not just the way to get to heaven. Jesus is the way that we begin to experience the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven to a smaller degree on the earth right now. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Let me give you two things. Two things you can begin to think about and begin pray about doing. Number one, begin to make room. I know some of us have very, very busy schedules. But make room, not just on Sunday morning, but make room during your week to spend one-to-one -one time over coffee, tea, something with other Christians to talk about uh, the gospel, to encourage one another, to share each other's stories, to pray for one another. And then the second thing is this. Uh, pray for God to show you where to serve. Um, some of you, you know, you, you've moved down here um, from uh, someplace else, and it's really hard to get connected, and I understand that. But for some of you, you may need to say, okay, Lord, show me where I can serve. Show me the needs around me and begin to serve, even within this community. Sound good? All right, let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.